Hi, welcome to Quid Pros Quo. I'm Rin. And I'm Zach. And today we're talking about microfiction. I'm super excited to talk about microfiction today because I had a phase in high school where I only wrote microfiction. Um, and none of it was very good. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. I'm you a better writer now and that's what counts. Yes. It, helped me, it helped me on my journey to become a better writer. Yes. You start out with something, you're not very good at it, and then you do it more and you get better at it. That's how it goes. Yes, absolutely. So, Zach, do you want to tell us what microfiction is? Sure. Microfiction, put simply, is just a really, really short story. It's shorter even than a short story. What does that even mean? Well, it depends on who you talk to. It depends on the submission requirements for whatever you're, whatever you're looking at. Some people say that microfiction is less than 100 words. Um, there's a subset of microfiction that's called Twitter fiction, which is fiction that's written in 140 characters or less or whatever Twitter's character limit is these days. But the point of it is that it's just a super short story. Nice. We're going to start by reading some microfiction. Where we source our microfiction for this episode is the online magazine Centrifictionist. And Zach, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Centrifictionist? Yeah, so Centrifictionist is an online um, short story or an online microfiction uh, literary magazine. And you can find it at thecentrifictionist.home.blog. Um, you just type that in, it'll take you to their website, and you can find all of these different examples of microfiction. So you can see what's publishable, what kind of the standards are, what kind of the format is uh, of the genre. Because it's really hard to write something if you've never read an example of it. Exactly. You've got to do your research, and research in fiction is reading fiction. Yes. Uh, so we looked at some of the top stories on Centrifictionist, and we came away with two that we're going to read for you today. Why I Don't Eat Birthday Cake and Generations. And we'll tell you, like, where they line with word count. We'll analyze them a little bit. We'll talk about what makes some good examples of microfiction. So I'll read Why I Don't Eat Birthday Cake by Uma Hamzik. My mother spent summers peeling peaches from our orchard and boiling them in sugar syrup. The jars of compact were for rare guests, Ramadan Don's birthdays. She would hide one jar for December and let me eat with my fingers. Peaches slurped down my throat and frozen honey, sour flesh shocking my baby teeth as I slipped agda syrup off my wrists. I ate everything and complained of a stomachache, napping on the tattered couch with a cool palm on my forehead. Now I buy canned peaches at supermarkets and eat over the sink. It's cheaper than plane tickets. So this was just like such an impactful story to me when I read it because it, you know, evokes all these childhood memories of eating like home canned fruit, which my mom always did. Um... And she, it was just so connected to like childhood and like the peaches slipping down your throat and frozen honey, sour flesh shocking my baby teeth. Like it was just such beautiful imagery to me. Yeah, and then at the end you get that twist inside of the emotion of the story where it goes from being being a high spot into a low spot. And I think that's really what drives microfiction is that shift from one state into another, and it can be. You know, positive emotion with negative emotion. Um, it could be, you know, oftentimes microfiction will go for surprise or humor as an example, uh, or as uh, as the twist that they're going for. But the twist really lies at the heart of of the microfiction. And in this case, you have the twist of sort of this childhood. Um, you know, this these childhood memories coupled with an adult reality. I mean. Lots of us who are, you know, transitioning from, you know, adolescence into young adulthood 
have found ourselves doing things like this, where we're thinking, oh, you know, it'd be so much better to have, you know, one of our one of our parents' home cooked meals or whatever. But we're having Wendy's for the fourth time this week, <laughs> and it's looking like we're going to have Wendy's tomorrow too. And it, you know, it's cheaper to you know get your four for four at Wendy's than to. Than to drive home, especially with gas prices being what yeah, they are right oh now. Yeah, oh my gosh. Or even fly home. Like, yep, yep. Everything, traveling is expensive. Existing is expensive. Yes. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, more on the twist, I thought it was... Um, I thought this twist was very impactful because it also like totally changes the imagery of the story. Mm-hmm. It goes from like this really rich imagery to just kind of this more bland imagery, which reflects the way canned peaches versus home canned peaches are. Yep. Um, because if you've ever had home canned peaches, they are so much better and more flavorful than, like, store-bought canned peaches. And it just, like, kind of shows that the ending is, like, a pale memory in comparison to the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that's nice about microfiction is that it rewards going in and looking at it a bit closer. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go back and you look at it, you start to recognize things that you maybe didn't realize on the first pass. I started to think about microfiction in the same way that I think about think about art. I've been spending a bit of time inside of art museums recently, and it's really easy to go from painting to painting and just kind of be like, oh, it's a painting. Oh, it's a painting. Oh, you know. Oh, and that one's a sculpture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But if you will stop and you'll look at a you'll look at a, a painting or a sculpture and you'll really take it in and you'll really observe it and you you know you pick it apart, then you're going to have a much different relationship with it and it will become much more meaningful to you than if if you hadn't. I know that I've had that experience where you know I've seen a painting and been like, oh, this is an you know this is a nice painting. It's pleasant to look at and that yes. sort of thing. But as I like. As I really look at it and observe it, I feel it challenging me and inviting me and, uh, you know, changing changing me. And, uh, you know, there's one painting in particular that I, I'm thinking of where it's one of those things that I come back to as, like, a symbol that I can use to understand, you know, heavy and complicated things inside yes, of my life. Yes, exactly. It's, like, how good art not only, like, answers your questions, but also gives you more questions to answer. Mm-hmm. Do we want to read our second microfiction piece? Let's do it. This is Generations by Faye Rappaport-Dupre. The year had been difficult. Looking back, it was hard to find anything good. He would lost his job, and now they could lose the house. His father's face haunted him, that gravelly voice. What a joke. Your failure. The dog could do better than you. Usually he'd been drunk, his eyes bloodshot, face red. Little Billy wandered into the doorway. Dada! he called, teetering halfway across the room before falling. The boy started to cry. He rushed over to Billy, picked him up, and kissed his head. Don't cry, he said, cuddling his son. Look how far you ran. Yeah, so the twist in this one is like goes along with, like, generational trauma, like, his father, like, being abusive and then, like, not perpetuating those, that trauma onto his son. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I thought this one was really nice because by the end of, like, look how far you ran, you forget that the beginning was, like, 
looking back, it was hard to find anything good. So like, mm-hmm. even in the midst of dark times, there's like still good things, and it's just it was very wholesome. Yes, yeah. it's sort of the opposite direction of what was going on with the with the last microfiction piece that we looked mm-hmm. at, where you're going from high emotion to low emotion. On this one, you're going from low emotion to high emotion, and yeah. like we like we talked about, that's kind of the engine that powers your microfiction is that shift from one emotional state to another. Um, and that can be backed up by decisions that you make about the prose. For example, in this story, at the beginning, it's very it's very general, um, and it's things that nebulously happened in the past. But at the end, they're very specific, very concrete experiences where it's not something that happened in the past or is happening right now, but it is a specific moment that is fixed in time, and it's right there. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it just... Again, it goes to show that the twist is, like, the center of microfiction. And mm-hmm. if... Because imagine if, like, the story ended, like, right before Lily Billy, little Billy wandered into the doorway. That's a bummer. Like, that's, that's a bummer. A bummer. <laughs> the dog could do better than you. And, like, that that would just be, like, so sad. And it wouldn't be as nearly as uplifting of a piece. It wouldn't be as good of a piece, in my opinion, if it didn't have that twist. Because it wouldn't be fulfilling its purpose as microfiction. Mm. So if we're writing our own microfiction pieces, the twist is often a good spot to start where you're figuring out what is the twist that I want to have happen here? You know, am I going from low to high? Am I going from high to low? You know, what are the, what are my bookends going to be? And how am I going to transition between them? Yep, absolutely. Um, I think the last thing we want to talk about for microfiction is that it's a good way to practice in public. Uh, which is to say it's a good way to get lots of work out quickly. Mm-hmm. And I know you have a really good story about... Yes, I love this anecdote. So there's the story that I've heard, not sure if it actually happened, I sure hope that it did though, where you have this pottery teacher who divides the class into into two groups. One of these groups is going to be graded on the quantity of ceramics that they produce. So they're just supposed to make a lot of them. The other group is supposed to be is going to be graded on the quality of the ceramics that they produce. And so you can kind of see that one of them is being graded on quantity and one of them is being graded on quality. And at least inside of our Western culture, we kind of lean more towards the quality over quantity, at least if you don't work inside of a factory or Walmart or anything. <laughs> um, and... What happens is that at the end of the at the end of the semester, the teacher is looking at the kinds of artwork that was produced by the students, and they found that those students that were just worried about making as much of it as possible had higher they had higher quality work than the students who were just agonizing over this one piece trying to make it perfect. Because they, the ones that were looking at quantity were willing to experiment and to try something new. And, you know, if it didn't work, okay, who cares? It's just going to be weighed in, in the end. And with microfiction, you can do the same thing where you can crank out, you know, 20 microfiction pieces. And maybe 18 of them are really, really bad. But you have two that are really, really good and are a lot better than what you would have gotten if you had stopped after the first two and then tried to agonize them and kind of like... Push them into into um, some final form yes. that was better than yes. what it started as. Yes, yeah. uh, I would say that it goes along with the idea of practice makes progress because mm-hmm. you know 
art's never perfect. Like, mm-hmm. even if it's technically perfect, no one's going to agree that it's perfect. Yes. Um, but it does make progress, and eventually, like, the more you practice, the better you'll be. Yeah, and you mentioned practicing in public, where it's something that is really easy to share mm-hmm. because it you know, people are more likely to read something that's less than 100 words or, you know, less than 140 characters, depending on what range you're going for, than they are going to be willing to read your 400,000-word novel that you've been Mm -hmm. working on for three years. Yeah. Um, It's a lot easier to get that in front of a lot of people and for them to to give you feedback about, like, oh, I really like your writing, or your writing is boring, which we (laughs) hope nobody ever says that to you. Um, But you can get that constructive criticism a lot quicker and uh, um, a lot more easily than you can with uh, more a project that requires more commitment, like a short story or a novel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been Quid Post Quo. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time.